All right, good morning. My name is Nate, and I have the privilege of opening up God's Word, and I would encourage you to open up your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you've got one of our Bibles, it's on page 1059. If you don't have a Bible or you need a new one, please take one of ours with you. This is our gift to you. We're going to be camping out in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And as you can tell, uh, Who's Your One is a campaign, it's a nationwide campaign that we are involved with that is challenging all of our Southern Baptist churches to consider one person, each, each one of you consider one person, and commit to pray for them daily, regularly, in hopes that you'll have an opportunity to invite them to church and ultimately to share the gospel with them. And so I love being part of this because this is, this is something that's bigger than any of us. And my hope and my prayer is that we will see more and more people come to Christ throughout our nation because of this campaign. And so during this campaign, we've started a sermon series that has been focused on the attributes that you need to be a passionate evangelist. And so the people that have turned this world upside down for the gospel tend to have these five characteristics, these five attributes. And so the very first week we started out with the attribute of joy, uh, and specifically joy in Christ. And we, we talked about how joy naturally flows outward into praise, and we naturally talk to people about the things that we're excited about. And so we don't necessarily have to have some grand strategy to share the gospel with our community. We just need to be excited about Jesus. And so we talked about joy. The second week, we talked about compassion. And so joy pours out of us. Compassion tugs at our heart towards those who don't yet know Christ. And then last week, we talked about hope. Those who flip the world upside down have this view of the future. And hope is not just wishful thinking. It's the, the idea that I am confident in the promises of God and what he's promised for us in the future. I'm looking forward to that. And that's what drives us. That's what motivates us. That's what brings us joy. And so somebody who's going to be passionate about sharing the gospel is going to be filled with hope. And so today we come to the, the next characteristic, which is a, a holy unrest. And another term you might use is an urgency, but I wanted to go deeper than that. And so what causes an urgency in us to share the gospel? And really all of the, all of the men and the women throughout the history of the church that have really played a significant role in turning the, the world upside down for the gospel, that have had a huge impact on other people's lives, they've had this. They've had this holy unrest. It's a, a deep sense that things are not how they ought to be. They look at the world and they see, okay, we don't find our joy in Christ like we ought to. We don't have the compassion that we ought to. We don't have the hope that we ought to. And they... they they see that people are missing out on what could be their greatest joy. And they recognize that if we don't do something about it, there will be people that we love that will spend eternity in hell separated from the love and the, and the joy of Christ. And so this holy unrest has given many, many missionaries an urgency to share the gospel. Let me share one of my favorites. Adoniram Judson, famous Baptist missionary to Burma in the early 1800s, and he had some grit 
took him 12 years before he had a, his first 18 converts. And so year after year, he was just removing rocks to try to get the soil fertile enough to plant the seeds of the gospel to see it grow. But by the time he passed away, he had planted or helped plant over 100 churches with around 8,000 members. Well, Judson definitely had this holy unrest. In fact, 200 years ago, he wrote these convicting words that I think we still need to hear today. He said, let me beg you not to rest contented with the commonplace religion that is now so prevalent. See, nominal Christianity is nothing new. 200 years ago, he was dealing with the same thing we're dealing with today in churches. I read this article recently that really was convicting. Uh, it, it was about these, this couple who, uh, they used to be Muslims, they live in an Islamic country, and they converted to Christianity, and they were sharing the gospel and seeing many Islams turn to Christ. In their country, if you get caught sharing the gospel, they would capture you, they would torture you and try to extract information about other Christians from you. And so every day, as they went out to share their faith, they would come together and they would acknowledge to one another that, look, we may never see each, each other again. And, and she knew if she got captured, she would be tortured, more than likely she would be raped multiple times. He knew if he got captured that he would experience excruciating, brutal pain. Eventually he'd be executed. But for both of them to live as Christ and to die as gain, they, they would often spend four plus hours praying and reading the Bible, fasting before they would leave to go out to share the gospel because they recognized that in that culture they needed to fully depend on God. Well, a number of years ago, that couple had the opportunity to come and move to the States, which they did. And they lived here for a little while, but it wasn't too long before the, the wife began to plead her husband to go back to their Islamic country. And this is what she said. And this is what was so convicting. She said, it's like there's a satanic lullaby playing here in, United, in the United States and the Christians are asleep. And I feel like I'm falling asleep. Please, let's go back. Which they did. Because they, they felt it was... They would rather go back to this, this extremely dangerous environment because they considered it more dangerous to their souls to stay here. Man, let's pray that God would wake us up. Bow your heads with me. Father, I recognize that just simply talking about spiritual apathy and having an urgency for the gospel changes very little, and we need your spirit right now to invade our hearts, to wake us up. I pray that you would help us not just see the passion that Paul had for the gospel, but that you would give us just a fraction of that passion, and that you would be glorified through us because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, as we look at Paul and his passion, you're, you're going to see a holy unrest. It's not hard to find 
Paul's passion. If you read his letters, they're all, it's all over the place. In fact, I think we read in, in the reading this morning from Romans chapter 9, if you remember, Paul said this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. At the beginning of chapter 9 of Romans, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And so evidently Paul's about to say something that sounds unbelievable. Okay, believe me, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says, that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And so Paul's passion was so great that he, he said, look, I wish I could take their place. My brothers, these Jews who have rejected Christ, that are cut off from Christ, I wish I could be cut off for, from Christ if they could just know him. Man, if we just had a, a fraction of Paul's passion for the gospel. I think we'd flip this whole city upside down for Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9, we're, we're going to see Paul's urgency, his holy unrest. We're going to see also his motivation, and then we're going to see his strategy for reaching the lost. And so you gotta, to understand this passage, you really have to understand the context of what's going on. Uh, in chapter 9, Paul's talking about his Christian freedom, uh, he's talking about that now, because of Christ, he no longer is a slave to the law. And remember, he was a Pharisee. And so the Pharisees, they, they loved the law. They loved rules. They made rules on top of rules, so they didn't break the rules. And that's who he was. And so he was, he was saying, look, I'm free from all of that. But you know what? I, I don't use my freedom all the time. I don't exercise that freedom all the time because there's something more important than my, my freedom. It's that I would share the gospel, that people would be one for Christ. I mean, Paul, Paul had this freedom. He no longer had to walk on eggshells on the Sabbath day. Can I pick up this pencil or not? Today, he could fellowship with us and eat bacon alongside of us. And he, enjoy, he enjoyed those things, but he said, you know what? There's something more important than those freedoms, the salvation of the lost. So listen to the, his passion. We're going to start in verse 19. So again, 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews... I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To, those, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. Listen to this. I have become all things to all people that by all means... I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. I mean, can you feel Paul's passion, his urgency in this passage? I, I will become whatever I need to become. I will do whatever I need to do by all means possible. And so what's his motivation? 
Why does he have such urgency? Why does he do it all for the sake of the gospel? Well, he gives us three reasons in this passage for his urgency. Number one, that I might win more of them. Number two, that by all means I might save some of them. And then third, that I may share with them in the gospel's blessings. You see, five times in this passage, he says that, look, my aim is to win people. Look at verse 19, that I might win more of them. Verse 20, that I might win the Jews, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21, that I might win those who are without law, that I might win the weak. And so five times he says he's willing to adapt his life in order to win them. And then at the end of verse 22, he summarizes his aim with a different word. He says, I've become all things to all people that I, by all means I might save some. And then in verse 23, he explains that further. He says, I, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. And so Paul's saying that, look, if my faith doesn't lead me to pour out my whole life for the the mission of the gospel, my my faith is not real. And I won't be able to share in the blessings of the gospel. Paul had this mentality. He looked at the people around him. He looked at his family and his friends, his people he worked with, people he went to school with. And he said, these people are on a, it's like they're on a boat in the middle of the ocean and they're sinking but they don't realize it. And there's a lifeboat that's available to them, and so I need to do whatever I can to convince them that, that the wrath of God is about to consume them. And there's a lifeboat that they can get into. And that was his passion. No matter what it takes, I need to convince them. I need to win them and convince them that they're of their impending death and that Jesus offers life. And that if they join him in the lifeboat, that there's going to be this huge celebration because of what Christ has done for them to save them from, the, from God's wrath. Often, I think we don't share the gospel because we don't have that same mentality. If we're honest, we don't really believe that the wrath of God is coming. We definitely don't like to think about it, even if we do believe it. For many people today, I think sharing the gospel is simply trying to help them overcome some of the difficulties in life. Sharing the gospel is just simply helping them overcome poverty. Or it's simply trying to help them overcome some kind of psychological issue that they're dealing with. They're they're dealing with depression or loneliness or anger or self-esteem issues or or fear. And, And you know what? Yes, the gospel has some awesome side effects. The gospel impacts those things in a, in a really awesome way. But that, that, those things getting corrected are not what makes the gospel good news. Even if the gospel had no impact on any of those psychological issues, the gospel would still be unspeakably good news. Do you believe that? The good news of the gospel is that there is now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That Jesus absorbs the wrath of God that we deserve. That he came and he died the death that we deserved so that we could spend eternity with him. And so if we never think 
about the wrath of God coming. If that is not a part of our regular thought life, look, we're not going to fully realize how good the good news is. And we're never going to have the same passion that Paul has in this passage. And so we've seen his passion, we've seen his motivation. Let's take a look at the strategy that he uses to win the lost. Look at verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So Paul, first of all, I want to say, this is what Paul is not saying here. All right, Paul is not saying that you have to become everything to everyone, okay? That's very overwhelming, okay? We we recognize, okay, we can't save everyone. We can't help everyone. But Paul is saying, look, you can't help somebody. In fact, Paul is saying, look, no, you can't be everything to everyone, but you can be something to anyone. That's what he's saying in this passage. Paul Paul is not advocating also a license to act in any way you want just to fit in in hopes to share the gospel. There's been churches that have taken this passage to the extreme. And, for example, there was was actually, I would consider it a cult uh, back in the 1970s, early 80s called the Children of God. And uh, they, they uh, were convinced that they needed to start doing what was called flirty fishing. And so the women would act as prostitutes to try to lure men to Christ. Okay, that's an extreme example, of course. To bring it home a little bit today, uh, what, what I see is uh, what's called the emergent church. Not the emerging church, but the emergent church, or often it's called progressive Christianity, which is just another version of a very liberal form of, of Christianity, that it's a movement that takes this text to the extreme, I think. They're trying to fit into the culture, make the gospel more palatable to our culture. And so they end up, but this is what they do. They deny that salvation comes through Christ alone. They end up denying that Scripture is actually inspired by the Holy Spirit. They, they believe that, okay, the Holy Spirit may have influenced Scripture, but because they don't believe it was inspired, then that also means that they deny the inerrancy of Scripture. They deny the authority of Scripture. And when you start to do that, it's a slippery slope because now instead of God determining what is right and wrong and God determining what is good and evil, now we just make up our own rules then. And so for them to walk in love means that I'm going to accept and I'm not just going to accept, but I'm going to affirm just about any lifestyle, no matter how far away from God's design, they've gone. But if you look at this passage, if you look at the context of this passage and the rest of Paul's writing, it becomes obvious that Paul does not advocate that you water down the message of the gospel to appeal to different groups. Um, In fact, let's talk about what Paul is free from. He talks about Christian freedom. Specifically, what is is he talking about when he says that? If you look at the context of this passage, you see that the freedom that he's talking about is specifically about the the ceremonial and the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And and there is hundreds of them. The the Old Testament law was filled with these these laws. and, And he's saying that, look, once Christ came, Christ fulfilled those laws. And all those laws had a point. They pointed to Christ. But when Christ came and he died and he rose again, he fulfilled. This is why we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore, which I'm very thankful for. It would be kind of gross. 
But it's because Christ was the last sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. And so Paul says we don't need to continue to follow the ceremonial, the dietary laws of the Old Testament. He's got freedom. And that freedom opened up the door. See, because those laws, they deterred, they, they separated the Jews from the Gentiles. Okay? And so you can imagine trying to convince somebody to come to Christ, especially if they were a guy and they still had to be circumcised. Okay? That would be a huge deterrent. And Paul's saying, look, we're free from those laws. And that opens up the door for us to be able to share the gospel. But this freedom doesn't mean that Paul is still under, is not under any kind of law. Look back at verse 21. He says, to those outside the law, so he's talking about the Gentiles there, so to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. But then he says in parentheses, talking about himself, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. And so Paul is still under a law. It's the law of Christ. He didn't just do anything he wanted to do to try to win people to Christ. He was restrained by Christ's law. And Christ made it clear that, yes, the ceremonial laws have ceased, the the dietary laws have ceased, but the moral law, the Ten Commandments, they are very much still alive and and necessary. In fact, in Christ's teaching, he he explains the moral law and he actually raises the bar. Uh, He says, you've heard it said not to commit adultery, but I say to you, don't, don't even lust after another person. And so Paul's strategy, strategy was never to water down the gospel message. His strategy wasn't complicated. He, he didn't have some elaborate scheme. He didn't spend millions of dollars on advertising. I can't imagine Paul today would have fog machines and, and all sorts of crazy things that they're giving away on stage. He wasn't flashy. This was his strategy. Be a servant to all. Be a servant to all. What what did that look like for Paul? For for Paul, his Christian freedom allowed him to be flexible enough to relate to all sorts of people. That's what it meant for him. He felt the freedom to eat barbecue with the Gentiles, but he also, and he didn't feel guilty about that, but he also had the freedom, if he was around a lot of Jews, to refrain from eating pork And he didn't feel legalistic about it. He had that freedom. Paul's view of service meant trying to overcome unnecessary differences that tend to alienate us from unbelievers. And so let me give you several examples of how this plays out in our lives. And so you go to Scotland on a mission trip. And you sit down in an unbeliever's house and they offer you haggis. Now, if you don't know what haggis is, you can look it up, but you may never want to eat it again. If they sit haggis in front of you, you don't ask what's in it, you eat it, and you thank them. <laughs> or if you go to Africa, and they set before you rice with some kind of mystery meat, no silverware, you don't ask them what the meat is, you dig in with your hands, and you eat alongside of them. Or to bring it home, if you're here on a Wednesday night with Mark 12, serving food to the homeless, you don't just hand out food, you get a plate yourself, you sit down with them, you have a conversation with them, you ask them probing questions, you let them know that you truly care about them. If somebody comes and visits on a Sunday morning, maybe they don't look like you, they don't dress like you, they don't talk like you, they they might be a different age than you, 
You know what? You still, you go and you welcome them. You talk to them. You offer to sit by them. You introduce them to other people. I think if we're going to follow Paul's strategy, I envision a church that, that's willing to adopt kids from all sorts of places that look all sorts of different ways. Uh, we're a church that goes to all sorts of different countries to, to get the gospel to all sorts of different kinds of people. We're a church that, that looks extremely diverse, young and old and different socioeconomic patterns, different, different colors. That, uh, we represent the creativity of God. That's what Paul, I think, was after here in this passage. His strategy makes us willing to do whatever it takes to reach out. Have you ever done an in-depth Greek study on the word all? He says, I have become a servant to all, so I might win some. Have you ever done an in-depth Greek study on the word all? You know what it actually means? It means all, okay? That's what it means. We do whatever it takes to reach all kinds of people. And so I want to be a church that follows Paul's strategy, not watering down the message of the gospel, but being flexible enough to take away all the unnecessary differences so that people from all different lifestyles can come and hear the gospel and respond to it. And it's a strategy, as we see in this passage, that doesn't come naturally to us. In fact, it takes discipline. Look back at the passage, verse 24. Look, for, look at verse 24. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And so Paul is saying that our passion for the gospel, this holy unrest, this urgency, should be like you being an Olympic runner that is pushing their body to the limits to win that gold medal. See, if you want this type of passion, the type of, the type of passion that Paul had You've got to exercise your spirit. You've got to have some spiritual disciplines. You've got to spend time daily in the Word of God. I would challenge you. I mean, what if we all started reading the Bible three chapters a day and four on Sunday? You know what you do? You read the, you read the whole Bible in a year when you do that. Three chapters a day and four on Sunday. If you did that over... 25 years, you're going to know a whole lot about Christ and that passion is going to rise. You need to spend time in prayer. I mean, just like those missionaries or the, the, those Muslims that, that spent multiple... And I think it was um, Martin Luther uh, said he, he prayed hours every single day because he didn't have... And this is a guy who's extremely busy. But he said, I'm, I'm too busy not to pray for hours upon hours because there's so much that rides on it. And then fellowship. I mean, if you focus on spending time in the Word, spending time in prayer, 
And then we come and we fellowship. Why do we have to come back to church every single Sunday? Why is it so significant that we spend time investing in relationships with other believers? Is because we recognize that we are prone to wander and we need the encouragement of other believers to continue to push on. If we want to have the discipline to be able to focus on God and be in his word and be in prayer, we need to take seriously the gathering together as believers, building those relationships, encouraging one another. He says we're running to win something infinitely greater than a gold medal, something that will last forever. We're running to win souls, to share in the blessings of the gospel. So going back to Adoniram Judson, when he was getting ready to leave to go to India, to to go to Burma, he went to his wife's parents to ask permission to take their daughter away. And this is what he said. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to see her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and the sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Man, that's the kind of passion. I want a half. If we had just a fraction of that passion, I think our world would turn upside down. Let's pray that God would give it to us. Father, we confess that often we are apathetic to the gospel. That we don't have a concern for the souls of others. And so we plead with you right now that our hearts would be changed. That through your word and as we sing these songs and as we go to your table and we're reminded of what you've done for us, that we would be willing to do whatever it takes to bring the gospel to the world. For your glory, not ours. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we celebrate communion every single week as a, as a family. And if you're a believer, if you've trusted in Christ, you've fully committed your life to him, I would encourage you to celebrate with us. I would also encourage you, if you've never experienced the hope of the gospel. If you've never seen the gospel as significant in your life and God is working in your heart and he's opened up your eyes to to trust that what he did on the cross is enough to save you and you want to live for him, I would love 
for you to come and talk to me and share that with me because we want to celebrate with you. If you've got questions about salvation or questions about our church family, about membership, about baptism, what that means, please don't leave here today until you get those questions answered. Or if you just need prayer, if you're at a time in your life where you're just struggling, you need prayer, I'm going to be in the back. I encourage you to to join me back there. Uh, If you want to wait till everybody sits down and What's going to happen is everybody's going to go through these lines. We've got stations up here and we've got stations in the back. And after everybody goes through the line, we're going to stand together. And when everybody stands, if you want to just slip back there, I would love to pray with you and, and just celebrate with you what God is doing in your life. This is a time for us to confess our sins before God. This is a time for us to reflect and ask the question, okay, what do I need to do in light of your word? So I would encourage you, after you take communion, to reflect. And after everybody's gone through the line, let's stand together. Let's worship the God that has saved us. It's also a time for us to to give generously and joyfully to the mission. If you're a visitor, don't feel obligated to do that. But you come as God is calling you. You respond as God is calling you.